Our guest today is Charles-André Marchand. We met as virtual booth partners. That's what you call the person with whom you're interpreting when the interpreting happens to be for an online conference. So here we were. It was the first time I ever met poor Charles, and I was desperately unwell, but no one was available to replace me. Luckily, it was a slow-paced and deadly boring day, and he kept me from crawling back into bed in a heap of misery and giving up by turning on his camera while interpreting and doing ridiculously hilarious imitations of the speaker. <clears throat> Who shall remain unnamed? I could tell I had just met a legend. Former journalist, well-loved author of 10 books and counting, published in Quebec, and sports radio host, Charles-André can speak to almost any topic and we do so during our hour-long interview, which turns from former servant status of Francophones in Quebec, not so long ago either, in the 1970s, to the diversity of neighborhoods, quartier of Montreal, to the beauty and rich cultural life of Quebec. Music, film, literature, famous court cases, scandals, language and other rights worthy of defending, Rivalry between Quebec City and Montreal, real and imagined. Rugby versus North American football. Dreams and ambitions. Quote from Charles André, You never know where life may take you. Followed up by all sorts of interesting examples. And most fascinating of all, for this linguist, exploring a world where it's all bilingual, in French and in English, as a matter of course. Astounding. Bonjour and welcome to French Please, the podcast. We believe a language is best learned through conversation between friends or family members. Each episode, your hosts, Angela and Thierry Chenu, share ways to make your home a place where French language and culture from around the world are incorporated into your day, the fun, fast, and easy way. So Charles-André Marchand, welcome to French Please, the podcast. Thank you for being here today. Merci beaucoup. Thanks for having me. Yes. I am truly looking forward to a couple of things. Speaking with you about your native country, which some people might say is Canada, but I believe you would say is Quebec. Is that right? I'm, I'm a Quebecois. Yeah. You're a Quebecois. Is there another word in English for Quebecois? Um, the Anglophones here would use Quebecers, but I find it a bit, uh, you know, I don't know how, Quebecois, if they can't say Quebecois, they're not worth it. <laughs> All right, then, Quebecois. So is to find out more about your country, and also as a linguist, I'm very much interested in the way it works to live, how does that work when you live in a bilingual country, and how did you come to speak both languages? Well, I was born and raised in a neighborhood of Montreal called uh, Notre-Dame-de-Grâce, which we also call NDG, No Damn Good, uh, where the majority of the neighbors were Anglophones. Uh, so uh, I basically grew up with uh, a lot of Anglophones. Even the um, most of my friends were Irish. So uh, we'd end up playing hockey on the public rink 
and uh, always ended up with, with uh, fistfights with the, the Anglos and the Irish were, of course, with us. So, <laughs> so it was the good old seven, 60s and 70s. Can't do that anymore. But uh, so basically, I grew up with a lot of Anglophone friends, and uh, that's why I grew up with watching Notre Dame football before watching the Montreal Alouettes football. Uh, because my Irish friends, everything had to stop when the Irish were playing. Of course. Did you, when you were getting into fistfights and playing hockey, what language was that in then? Uh, well, usually it was started when we were called the uh, frogs. And usually our Irish friend would come to our rescue, of course, because they wanted to fight. They always wanted to fight. They're Irish. That's what they do in life. <laughs> and so we ended up doing it too. <laughs> Right, but as your as your little kids and you're so you're insulting each other in English, right? Oh, in both languages. In both languages, okay. Oh yeah, those were the days. I love it. Our, our parents would ask, "Why you go back? You always end up in a fight." Says, "Well, they're they're, they're our friends." <laughs> they're our friends, and yeah. And you said, so you're, you're Francophone in a neighborhood that's mixed. What, are, what language is school in? Uh, well, we've got, I went to French school all my life. Uh, there's a, there was a French school in my neighborhood. Then I went to Les Petits Chanteurs du Mont-Royal, uh, which was a, not only a music school, but a regular a primary school. And uh, so I spent there. And after that, I went to Collège Notre-Dame uh, in Côte des Neiges. So one of the oldest colleges in Montreal. So only, that university is... that I, only university that I did in English at Concordia. So in the same neighborhood, you would have side-by-side -side yeah. schools where English is spoken and schools where French is spoken. Yeah, and usually, and, usually, yeah okay. and the Irish usually attended the Catholic school and the Anglos usually attended the, the Protestant school. That was next, one next to each other. Right. So we can imagine the recesses were also lots of fun. <laughs> well, growing up myself in a town that was about 90% Catholic, but some people chose to send their children to public schools. Ours was ours was a sort of the Catholic school and the public school were side by side. Okay. And once and once I got to like 6th grade, so at the age of about 12, we had shared time so they threw the Catholic school kids in half day in the public school. Okay. We were in our uniforms, so it was impossible to hide. Oh, man, recess. Yeah. Recess was fight time. Yeah. Excellent. And then as, as things move on then, I know that you've worked as a journalist in many different domains, but mm -hmm. one that coincides with what I do as a court interpreter you yeah. worked covering the courts, um, yeah. notably the Harley-Davidson really the, big uh, trial. The Hells Angels, the Hells Angels uh, mega trials here were a big, uh, big story because during the 1990s, there was a, a turf war between the Hells Angels and the local uh, uh, criminals, uh, neighborhood criminals. Basically, I give, I give the image, it's that Walmart wanted to acquire the monopoly of the territory. <laughs> so the small independents regrouped themselves in a mock uh, bike group that was called the the Rockers, uh, the Rock Machines, that eventually uh, asked to be sponsored by the Bandidos, which was a more world class organization. And huh. so we had, oh yeah, it was really uh, a turf war. 
who was going to control uh, drugs on the territory of Montreal. Now, the problem was, is that outside of Montreal, well, the little, uh, the local Els Angels had pretty much the monopoly. And they had a, uh, a way of uh, uh, dealing with the local cops where there was like an agreement. You don't go in schools. You don't uh, harass kids with drugs and stuff like that. And, you know, we won't bother you uselessly. But when they created Carcajou, and I'm trying to remember uh, the word in English for Carcajou, but it's uh, one of those little feisty little beasts. And um, they, it was a union of the RCMP, the Sûreté du Québec, and the local municipal police corps of Montreal and the neighborhoods and the, uh, the, the suburbs. And then, well, everybody was fair game. And that was a long war, it, and Carcajou operation led to many arrests, uh, including the leader of the Nomad chapter, uh, Maurice Mamboucher, uh, who had been defying the law for since the 70s. And now he's, he's in jail now, uh, and he will, will never get out because uh, he also got accused of murders of uh, two uh, prison wardens, uh, of uh, sponsoring the murder of two prison wardens. So, and it, but it changed, it changed the game. And actually, uh, I, I wrote a series that's called Pègre Québec. The two first volumes are out. And the third one will be uh, the years that led to the, uh, the Bikers' War. And the fourth one will be Les Années Mamboucher. So how the years mm. Mamboucher and the Els Angels, how they change the landscape of criminality in Montreal and in Quebec. And now uh, everybody, it, 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 there was a shift of, uh, I'd say like of power with the mafia, the, uh, the street gangs that are right now uh, are uh, are fléau à Montréal um, because they, they don't abide by, they have no hierarchy. They have no rules. The mafia has a hierarchy. The Hells Angels have a hierarchy. Uh, the uh, local, you know, neighborhood criminal organizations have a, a hierarchy. You cannot go and shoot randomly uh, just for the fun of it. But in the uh, the uh, the street gangs, there's no hierarchy. It's free for all. Actually, killing for no reason. It's almost like uh, showing that you're man enough to be belong to the gang. So uh, we've got, the, and this is very difficult for police to um, control because they're, they're uh, you know, they're loose cannons, basically. They're yes, loose cannons. The, fact, the, the, yeah. the drug and gang problems, unfortunately, are not confined to Montreal. Oh, have, no, I know. I'm very aware of that. Our own, our, in our little town here, it's more about the, the rite of passage is stealing someone's car and wrecking it. So there's, okay. been a, there's been a deluge of that. Uh, so you have, I have had the pleasure of reading your first Pègre QC on the okay. beginnings, the, the early days of organized crime in the underworld in, not just in Montréal, in Quebec, generally in Quebec, speaking, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. because the first, the first criminals, the first criminals were basically les corsaires et les pirates, uh, corsaires and pirates. And mm -hmm. uh, they, they were, you know, and sometimes you look at it, uh, the logo of the Hells Angels, c'est une tête de mort. It's a death 
uh, the, the, the skull. Uh, the, the, yeah. And skull what is the logo bones. of the pirates? Skull and crossbones. Yes. And what is the purpose? Is to uh, inspire fear, to intimidate, to say that, okay, we are ruthless and we're capable of the worst. So be, 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 be scared. And you look at the parallel of the pirates of the 17th, 18th century and the Els Angels of the, 21st, of the 20th and 21st century. Hey, same difference. Same difference. Small terrorists, big terrorists. Yes. Uh, <laughs> when, so backing up just a tiny bit, I'm going back yeah. again. I keep taking the angle of trying to understand how all of these things happening in two languages. What happens when you get to court? Uh, in a sense, what language is someone prosecuted well, in? What? Depends. It depends of the accused. Depends okay. of the accused. Uh, an, an accused is allowed to have a, a trial in English or in French. Uh, it depends of the accused. Uh, okay. And so, so and, and you're... It depends also of the lawyers of the accused, because sometimes an accused will choose uh, a, a, a trial in French for various strategic reasons. Sometimes the, the lawyer is more fluent in French than in English. So they'll provide an interpreter for the accused if he chooses uh, to have a, you know, I'm thinking of one lawyer in particular that's called Maître Jacques Larochelle, who was the, one of the big guns of the Els Angels and probably one of the best criminal lawyers in Quebec, uh, if not in Canada. And uh, some accused from the Els Angels that were Anglophones chose to be represented by him and but he's a guy from quebec city that is not really that uh, fluent in, in english but he's very uh, theatrical in french it's very you know he's at his best in french so the it's, accused will have easier. It it's, a, it's almost easier to be theatrical in french or at least dramatic <laughs> oh trust me i know some <laughs> english lawyers that are very theatrical too but that's another topic but yeah so it, it depends of the, the, the so you have the right to be uh, served either in French or in English in Quebec. Okay. So are all of the judges bilingual or are there just interpreters all the time yeah. in the courtrooms? It depends. There are some, most ju judges I'd say would be bilingual, especially in Montreal. Outside of Montreal, that's another situation. Because if you come to Montreal and you don't get to be, you know, if you go downtown Montreal, you won't be lost Everybody speaks English. Sometimes even I'd say that, uh, you know, they will speak to you in English first and before French. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go outside of Montreal, if you go in Quebec City and Trois-Rivières and Sherbrooke, Sherbrooke is a bit more bilingual, but uh, Trois-Rivières, uh, Quebec City, or even further out in, in the province, uh, there are lots of chances that you'll meet people that not only don't speak English, but also have an accent that is uh, sometimes uh, quite thick. <laughs> I've uh, I've been doing more interpreting in Canada this, the past couple of years. Okay. And I've um, I've been witness to some interesting, just as it would be complicated for someone from Montreal probably to understand someone from Alabama, <laughs> once in a while I get someone from a little bit further out in, yeah. in Quebec. And I My have first to listen. 
my first time in Atlanta, the taxi driver that led me from the airport to the hotel took 40 minutes. I think I didn't hear, understand one word he said. Can believe it. Yeah. And we spoke about the fact that you wrote this one book, but also you're the author of many books. So mm -hmm. how did you go from, was your first career journalist and radio announcer, or did you go from journalist to author, back to radio, back and forth to radio? How did you get into writing, and what's, what's the literary scene like in Quebec? First of all, uh, I, uh, I, I'm, uh, I've, got, I've got a BFA in film production from Concordia University. I've got a uh, Music Harmony uh, BFA from the Royal Conservatory of Toronto, the University of Toronto. Uh, I wanted my dream when I was a teenager was to be a filmmaker. I was the next Jean-Luc Godard or the next Igmar Berman or the next, uh, you know, that was my dream. And yes. I was gonna uh, write my scenarios, direct my films and write the music. So that, that was the big picture. I started doing radio uh, more, I'd say, by accident than anything else. Um, I got myself my first big summer job was the morning man at a radio station in Maniwaki, which is in northwest of Quebec, um, close to Ontario. That's the boondocks. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I was there on false pretenses saying, oh, well, I'm your new morning man. But really, the truth of the matter is I was going to go and pursue my university back in fall session. And which I did, but you know, life. Like, and I say this. I, I've said this to my kids so many times. You know, don't choose a field of study because you think that you will be making money or that uh, it's the trendy thing. Choose it with passion, and if you do something with passion, you'll be good at it. If not, you'll suck at it. Whether it's being a lawyer, a doctor, I don't care. If you're not passionate, you won't succeed. And I came back from Maniwaki, started back university, and I got a phone call from a, the new sports director of a, a station, a CGMS, a more, a AM station. And he says to me, he says, Charles, yeah, he got my number from the guy who gave me uh, classes in radio, you know, and it was also a former announcer at CBC. Mm -hmm. And he calls me and says, I'd like to meet you. I heard you when I was uh, at a country house uh, at Blue Sea Lake, not far from Maniwaki. So he heard me during the summer. And now he was oh, just named yeah. sports director in Montreal at CGMS, which was one of the top three AM stations in Montreal at the time. And he called me for an interview and went there a Saturday afternoon. I was supposed to go take my my girlfriend at the time for dinner that night, but that didn't happen because he looked at me. He says, "Well, the problem you were hired yesterday. You started how, yesterday." How old were you? I was uh, 18, 19. No way. And I'm like, okay. And then <laughs> he uh, gives me a credential for the tennis tournament in Montreal, and a tape recorder, a microphone. This is. You're going to cover tonight's events at the uh, Jarry Park. And my first inter my first crumb, uh, like, I, I have no idea what I'm doing there. It's like, I feel like an imposter. Here I am, all these sportscasters that I've seen on TV, heard on radio, read in the newspaper, and here I am, you know, fully, cre full credentials and everything. 
And there's a scrum with a guy that's named John McEnroe. Oh, never heard of him. Yeah. Never heard of him. <laughs> and oh here gosh. I am. And here I am with my microphone holding oh it. And I must be shaking like, you know, no tomorrow. I can and, just imagine. Yeah. And John McEnroe being John McEnroe. Oh, my gosh. He looks at me. He says, how long have you been doing this, kid? I said, about three hours. <laughs> so he puts his arm over my shoulder. He says, come here. Don't stress. I'll give you a one-on-one. -on -one. Fuck these piss asses. <laughs> he did it, it, of course. Uh, of course he did it to, uh, you know, uh, annoy the old colleagues that looked at me like, who the hell is this kid? And I sat down with John McEnroe, and he was very generous of his time and gave me a one-on-one. -on -one. And I met yeah. him a few years later during Olympics, and I told him the story. He says, I remember that one. <laughs> You probably don't get to do that too many times in a career. That's no, fantastic. So, so the, my first interview was with John McEnroe. La and he didn't either. throw anything at you? He didn't no, no, he was very gentle. You, he, he, he was, no, okay. <laughs> no, no, he was a quite, a, quite a gentleman. Quite He's a gentleman. Quite, quite famous for his temper. Um, oh, yes. As, as, you, as you know, yes. Yep. Excellent. So that's, that's how the career started. And... Uh, well, since I love foie gras more than I love Paris Pâté, well, I guess that radio seemed very attractive for the money I was paying back then, uh, compared to the idea of starting on a film set and making minimum wage as a gopher, go for this, go for that. Uh, so uh, I finished my degree, but uh, radio kidnapped my heart uh, for, well, the last 40 years now. No, I had okay. a question. So when, when you work like this, is it mostly in English, mostly in French? Or you were here because you can talk to John McEnroe, for example, in English and broadcast on a French radio? Well, or? The, the thing is, the thing is, you really can't cover sports uh, in, in Montreal without being fluently bilingual. It just won't happen because most of the athletes are Anglophones. Because uh, whether you look at the Montreal Canadiens, uh, the hockey team, the Montreal Alouettes, the football team, even the CF Montreal, the soccer team, back then the Expos. I mean, most of these guys were Anglophones or Hispanophones or, you know, so very few of them spoke French. Very few of them. And uh, it's still, instead of when you cover uh, a tournament like Les uh, Internationaux uh, du Canada, uh, well, most athletes, uh, they come from everywhere in the world, and English is the universal language. Uh, same with Formula One. Uh, I was the voice of Formula One for many, many years uh, at the Lille Notre Dame. I had the best seat in the house, just in front of the start-finishing line. But uh, we were doing a show that was both in French and English, because the hundred and, you know, hundred thousand spectators that were there, I'd say that more than half of them only understood English, mostly because they were coming from Asia, they were coming from the United States, they were coming from England. Uh, so it was a, it, it's the highest touristic event in Montreal is the Grand Prix of Formula One because it brings a lot of people with big bucks from everywhere in the world. Thierry has, comes from a world, as I was saying, where everyone speaks French, and I come one, mm -hmm. from one where everyone speaks English. So to imagine that you have side-by-side side all the time both languages 
is mm. just it's it's kind of mind blowing for this this Midwesterner or for someone from the southwest of France, not Paris. Mm-hmm. But it, it is our reality, and um, mm-hmm. and it also means that we have to be very vigilant to protect the French language in Quebec, because uh, we don't want to become Louisiana. We don't want to become uh, New England, which uh, you know a lot of cities in New England were francophone, because there were a lot of uh, uh, a lot of persons from Quebec that migrated when there was some crisis, shortage of jobs in the nineteenth century. That establish themselves in uh, the areas of New England, so you you have to protect the French language all the time, uh, and that's why sometimes our laws seems extreme for some people, but uh, if we don't protect it, uh, well, maybe my grandchildren won't speak French, maybe but their children do, won't. But you do have that locked in in your laws, correct? Yeah, but it, it, but you know what? Okay, uh, I'll give a, a, a bad example. Uh, for a lot of people, the women's rights were not questioned in the United States. It was equal rights. Eh? I look at some laws that are being passed in the south of the United States concerning women. I don't find that very uh, 2021 or 2022. It's pretty much 1950 and 1940. So you can never take for granted the rights that you have you can Agreed. never take it you, you can't you can't go and and say oh well that's that's a case closed because there's always someone that will say well it was better before it was us uh, it was better for the anglophone class uh, when the francophones were les porteurs d'eau when we right, were which means the servants exactly yes. Yes. Uh, and I know the word offends a lot of people, mais on était les nègres blancs d'Amérique. Mm. And, you know, even you look at some old paper, and I do a lot of research in history, and basically there was a debate that, you know, between a French-Canadian, uh, a First Nation person, or a black person, well, we were just maybe slightly ahead because we were almost white. Mm. It's crazy. But it, it, it was it was a fact. It was, uh, and that's another reason never to forget history, because there's some people. I, I did. I had a chance to do uh, uh, interpretation uh, for Margaret Atwood uh, during the spring, and she was the guest of the embassy of France in Ottawa. Although Margaret Atwood can very much function in French, she preferred to do her conference in English. And I got to be appointed to translate her. And I remember at the start, uh, she was talking about uh, Anne Maidstale. And she said, when I presented the Anne Maidstale to my publisher in the 80s, he looked at me and says, Maggie, this won't happen. In, this would not happen in the United States. It's impossible. Make it happen somewhere else. And like she in said, a, like we're anywhere, but anywhere. not in the United States. Not, not in our happen. civilized country. No, right? it can't. Yeah. And she, she said, I looked at my publisher and I said, you know, there's other publishing houses out there. If you don't like it, I can go elsewhere. And she said, no, 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 Maggie, don't go anywhere. Okay, we'll do it. But I think that, you know, it's far-fetched. And she's like telling the people from the French embassy, she says, well, I'm looking at what's happening in the States right now. I think that the handmade stale it's not that far-fetched. Not and, so much. And, and it's always that balance between the rights that, you know, the, 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 everything that you acquire, 
once you think it's granted, then you have a chance to lose it. What I what I enjoy about what you do is all of the different ways that you advocate yourself and and people that you're associated with, but advocating through like when I when I asked you about what's your favorite part of Montreal, Montreal and you've been sending me music and <laughs> names of books and especially music though. So advocating for something to continue existing, not only by, by obliging people to speak French, but through the music and through the mm -hmm. literature. I think that's, I think that's a win-win. But, but, you know, and that's why we're in a unique position as artists living in Quebec is we have our own star system. English Canada doesn't get that. English Canada, you become a star in English Canada if you're William Shatner and you succeeded in the United States. If you're John Candy, if you're Steve Martin, if you're Martin Sheen. Uh, all these guys, Canadians, once they make it big in the United States, they are big in Canada. In Quebec, it doesn't work like that. We have our own star system. That is very different than the star system from France, even. Of course, we uh, have the French stars coming over, and there's a you know a fluidity between the two countries, uh, but it's very different. So here, if you do a Salon du Livre, a book fair, mm -hmm. people come and meet the authors. They want to meet us. They want to talk to us. They want to. They, they're just not coming just to have a signature, a, a dedicated book. It's much more than that. They want to talk to you. They want to, to feel that they know you. So the proximity is always bigger because, you know, on est le petit village Asterix. <laughs> the, little, the little village you know, in Asterix, yes. Ouais, ouais, les irréductibles. The, the, the tiny, so the tiny holdouts among yeah, the, the big Roman or Anglo exact, Empire. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. We're resisting. Yeah. <laughs> we yes. don't have magic potion, but, but hey, we're working on it. We have wine, though. <laughs> and croissants, apparently. Yeah, yeah of course. Oh. I stole I stole from the Saint de France, uh, probably one of the best, the best uh, pâtissier, uh, boulanger that there is. He was in Toulon and now he's in Dorval, not far from my house. His name is Gaël. And I go and he said he makes the best croissant this side of the Atlantic. And oh. the best chocolatine, actually, and Thierry will laugh at that one. He's the one who explained to me that, you know, that there's a big debate in France between chocolatine and pain au chocolat, which is chocolate bread, essentially. And for Gaël was explaining to me that in the south of France, if somebody asked for a pain au chocolat, it was two euros. Chocolatine, one euro. Of course. <laughs> Same goddamn thing. <laughs> be, because you'd be a parigot tête de veau if you were voilà. a pain au chocolat. It's a no-no in the south of France. <laughs> or, or if you're ordering a beer in the south of France and you use a Parisian expression, you want to dis distingue. Oh. <laughs> they'll kick you out. Yeah, that, of course they will. You, you want a demi. Okay. We can right. get you a demi. Right, oh. Rightfully so. <laughs> Is there any sort of is there any sort of rivalité, let me think in English. Um, rivalry. Rivalry, thank you, between Montreal and Quebec City. Or of course. Between... Of course. Okay. Is, it only, uh, is it limited to sports or is it? You know what? It's, it stems from, I say, the day that Montreal became uh, the metropole of, Can of Canada at that time. 
uh, and that the railroads, because Montreal became, for a lot of geographic reason, uh, the center of uh, east, the east of Canada, with the railroads coming from New York City, from Toronto, the Great Lakes opening. So Quebec City was a bit marginalized because at first Montreal was la ville des anglophones. The, nice. you know, if you wanted to go to university, you had to go to Université Laval, which was in Quebec City. And it was with uh, the, uh, the help of the clergy that didn't want to lose uh, our best souls to the uh, city of sin that is Montreal. So better send them in a small city like Quebec City, where Université uh, Laval was uh, guided by uh, the religious orders and everything. And uh, so the first university in Montreal was McGill which is, was Anglophone, but that, that was, was okay. Question. It was okay, okay. you know, but, the, the, and for a long time, Laval uh, didn't want Montreal to have a French university, only a succursale, a succursale so, de l'Université Laval. Who did not want them to have one? Quebec City. They didn't, they didn't want Quebec Montreal. Quebec City didn't want Montreal to have one. Yeah, them. but it was Université oh, Laval. Okay. They want a monopoly again. So that, you know, uh, and I'd say that the, the, I often say that the rivalry between Quebec City and Montreal is pretty uh, one way. I'll explain myself. When Montreal Canadiens and the Quebec Nordiques uh, played, I was on the beach with Montreal Canadiens for those years. And going to Quebec City was no fun because uh, I think that people over there would wake up in the middle of the night to hate Montreal and Montrealers. <laughs> Uh, for us, it was like, well, Quebec City is not even, it's not a rivalry. Boston is a rivalry. We hate those goddamn Bruins. We hate those fly Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, and I'm not even talking of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, now that's pure eight. Quebec City was like, you know, the young sister that you like to tease, to annoy. And she gets totally frantic about it. And really, you're just like jiggling really quick what the hell yeah she's so easy to make her you know go crazy i say that's the relationship between montreal and quebec city and um and that and, and I, I often as a journalist i did it i say that well quebec city is a, it's, it's a village and then i've got the people from quebec city once what they want to lynch me i remember being on a show in quebec city on a radio show and they said you wrote in this article that you know Oh, I was a dossier de prostitution juvenile, juvenile prostitution. And I said, I wrote that only in a village like Quebec City would a radio host uh, give his personal phone number to an escort and show up with her in big restaurants, uh, you know, where everybody knows him and everybody understood the difference gap, age gap between them. So you only said in a this. village. I wrote that. You wrote that? Yeah, yeah I wrote that in an article. Publicly, in an article. Uh -huh. And you're and, still alive. Okay. Yeah, and I'm still alive. And uh, the day after, I was on a, invited on a radio show in Quebec City. And they said, you called us a village. I said, you know, the proof that you are is that you care. Ouch. You can, you, you can, <laughs> you, you can say anything about Montreal. You can say and You think that there's a Montrealer that is offended? And I'm sure Parisians are the same. You can say anything about Paris or Parisians. Same with New Yorkers. You can bitch New York all as you want. Hey, oh, yeah. They don't you're, give a... <laughs> they don't you're give just a, a blip on the map somewhere. Exactly. Now. That's so, not you know, yes. and, and that's yeah. And New York is not the United States. And Paris is not France. And Montreal is not Quebec. Yes. 
You know, it's uh, like every big cities in the world. Well, and thinking of that, I see you went to university in Toronto, mm-hmm. or you went to school in Toronto. In Montreal, is, in Toronto. Right. So is Toronto kind of the center for the arts, as far as performing arts no, and, it, and film and? Uh, I'd say well for English Canada. Only for, for English Canada. Canada. Yeah. Okay. For for Quebec, no, it doesn't apply. Uh, I went there because I had a teacher that was from the uh, Royal Conservatory and she referred me. So that Mm -hmm. was simply, you know, uh, I I almost went to to university in Los Angeles, but back then it was $50,000 a year and my father decided that uh, it was too much. Yes, yes. American university prices are (laughs) insane still, still Mm -hmm. worse and worse. And so, but in Canada, is everything, are all, is all higher education public? Like McGill. I well, know that I have friends who send their children who are bilingual to yeah. McGill if they can get in from France yeah. or from the United States. Uh, well, McGill is a good example. But university rates here are pretty much, uh, um, they have a, uh, a cap. So okay. to send your kid to university here, but you know, whether it's McGill, University of Montreal, Concordia University, whatever, in Quebec, it's about I'd say two thousand, three thousand dollars a year. Okay. Wow. And, and if and if you're smart and if you have good grades, you may have uh, une bourse d'études, mm-hmm. which is a scholarship. A scholarship. Yes. Yeah, I was looking yeah. for the word. So you may have a scholarship to study. Mm-hmm. Which is not the difference is that we don't give scholarships if you're a good athlete. We give scholarships if you're a good student. Oh, yeah. inter- very interesting difference. In <laughs> yeah. the, okay, what about well? There's some there's some there's some universities in the United States where they don't give uh, scholarships for athletes. I'm thinking of Harvard. I'm thinking of you know MIT. Uh, <laughs> They usually, uh, that's why you don't usually see them in the top 25 of the NCAA. No, that would be Iowa. (laughs) Go Hawkeyes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And sorry, I lost my train of thought, but it was, it was along the way to education again. And I won't even touch medical because that's a whole, that could be a topic for another day, but I, I do admire them. The Canadian system, we'll just say. Because um, even our conservatives are far more at, on the left side than your, your Democrats, except for a few, a few cases. But um, AOC comes to mind and Bernie also, but, you know, they could live in Quebec. <laughs> That's something I noted in France, too. Yes. The, yeah. I, I once looked at Thierry and said, well, wait, the center here. It's not my center. I'm really confused. It took me years. I lived in France for 14 years, and I would systematically read three newspapers. Oh, yeah. And you've been part of different newspapers and different radio stations, and Mm -hmm. as far as journalism goes, that's still something? No. Today, it's more radio. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, uh, I do uh, journalism as such, no. Uh, fait le tour du jardin. I, I've been around. I've, you know, I've seen what I was to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm at the age where I could retire. I'm just having fun. 
I'm just working to have fun. What I, you know, I'm at the age where I can choose and say, this I am not interested, and this I like, and uh, it gives me more time to write, uh, and that's a passion, a passion that I've had all my life, mind you. Les funérailles des dieux, uh, the uh, the first two novels I published, mm-hmm. uh, Les funérailles des dieux was basically when I was in CJEP, which was uh, between, in our system, it's between high school and university. And I had a, a girlfriend at the time that wanted to be an actress. And she went to audition at the Conservatoire d'Art Dramatique, the conservatory. And she asked me, in Montreal. And okay. she asked me to write a, a scene for her. Mm-hmm. And that scene that I wrote, is the genesis of the funérailles des dieux that was published like uh, five years ago? Oh, cool! So, so the, the the feel didn't get lost. The thread yeah, was exactly. not lost. Oh yeah. So uh, you know, and I've got this lot of uh, screenplays that I've uh, you know written in over the years, and some didn't you know go through, but I keep them in my my file cabinet here, and you never know when they're gonna serve to become another book. Or another novel. Excellent, excellent. So, I'll, I'll keep that in mind as I finally embark on my own book writing journey. So oh well, nothing, it's nothing it's a process. And, and yeah. once again, once again, life takes you in places where you don't expect it, and that's the beauty of it. Um, when I brought, when I first met my my publisher, François Doucet, uh, I went. It was to present him. The biography, the biography of a, a friend of mine who's called Bertrand Godin, who's a, a race car driver, um, mm-hmm. who uh, didn't have the profile of the uh, race car drivers. Usually, come from very rich family, from very wealthy family. Uh, mommy was a hairdresser, uh, daddy was a trucker. They live uh, close to Saint Hyacinthe in a small uh, agricultural town, and he wanted his dream was racing. And he bought his first cart uh, uh, beyond the back of his parents. I often say that l'histoire de piloter son avenir of Bertrand Godin, I often say to teenagers, that's a kid of how to disobey your parents' recommendations. I mean, he's a, he's a kid that left for, he won a, a, a formation, a training in France in the Formula Ford, uh, Formula Renault, uh, back in the south of France. And the idea was that he would arrive. That was worth about 10,000 euros at the time. And the idea was that he would arrive with his own sponsors so they could have a lodging and feed himself and everything. Uh, but uh, it was we were in a, search, a crisis of the economy and the sponsorship of uh, young drivers. Well, it was not the, you know, uh, the idea of the, the day. It was not, you know, the, the people had priorities elsewhere. So he finally left Quebec. His plane ticket was bought from the uh, Lécurie. Um, and um, he got there, he got to Paris, and then he was going much south in France. Uh, he had $400 in his pockets. And when the owner of the team uh, welcomed, it at, welcomed him at the uh, La Gare, at the train station, uh, he said, well, this is, uh, uh, where, did you have an apartment yet? Are you staying at a hotel? Uh, where should I? And he says, well, I got to admit, he says, uh, I came here. Uh, I don't have sponsors. 
uh, I, have, uh, I have $400 in my pockets. I spent already 100 some for the train station from Paris to this place. And the owner says, I was wait, he says, I thought that the owner would kick me out and send me, said, say to me, well, take the train back to Paris and go back home. Yeah. And that's not what happened. And he says, well, okay, we'll uh, figure it out. He says, he brought me to his place. Now, the owner of the team had a wife, had two young children. He, oh says, the wife, he says, the wife looked at me like, my God, we need a stranger like that in the house. He said, I felt like, you know, really a piece of nothing. It was like I wanted to hide. Uh, mm -hmm. I was staying in my room as much possible, not to be a nuisance, not to, you know. And happens, uh, I, te I tease him today, and I say, he's, he's in his 50s now. And I say, can you imagine? And there was a, a fellow journalist that encouraged him to go and follow his dream. And an old hippie that, you know, said, oh, well, everything's possible. And I said to Bertrand, I said, do you imagine if I would tell Annie, his wife, that Anthony, his son, their son, oh, could go to Europe with 400 bucks in his pockets. I said, do you think that Annie... He says, she probably would look for a shotgun and shoot you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but his story is extraordinary, and he does a lot of motivation speeches in school. And I, I wrote his story. After, I lend him uh, my, my, you know, my writing. And your voice, when, yeah. Yeah, and, and when and and people say, well, I said to people, if when you read Bertrand Godin, piloter son avenir, if you hear his voice, not mine, then I succeeded. And that's why I brought this uh, manuscript to uh, François Doucet, the publisher. And he said, he looks at me and says, I've known you for radio and TV for a long time. He says, I didn't know you you wrote. You wrote. I said, yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm not here for my stuff. says, what else did you write? Oh, plenty of things. And God, uh, Les Funérailles des Dieux was uh, already pretty much in progress, but I was procrastinating a lot. And he says, I want to see it. I said, oh, François, I want to see it. Okay, so I brought him on a clear USB. Uh, the uh, not even printed out a clear USB. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> first thousand pages of my mm -hmm. novel, and that became two novels. And it was, uh, and the day after he called me, he says, "Okay, I like it. I'm signing you for both, for the novel and Bertrand Godet." And wow. that's how it started. So that yeah. happens in real life. Okay. Yeah, that good, happens good in real to life. Know. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> And what uh, it's like what the that was in November, and I think six months later, I was at the Salon du Livre de Paris. Neat, good story. <laughs> All this so, while doing everything else that's going on around you at the same time. Yeah, you didn't uh, even hit pause on the interpreting and the radio announcing. But and even even the writing. interpreting, the interpreting it was. Uh, I was a mentor of a young journalist that started the business. And at one point, uh, started to do interpretation uh, for a big uh, multinational. And they were looking for translators. Now, that's maybe five, six, seven years ago. And he says, I think it'd be good. I said, well, you know, I might, I might try it. And I did it mostly, you know, when they were uh, in dire straits and they needed an interpreter at the last minute. But since COVID, I have to refuse assignments because I would be working seven days a week. 
And with COVID and COVID idiots, because in the translation, the, the, the interpreter's world, there's a few mm -hmm. idiots that refuse to be vaccinated. Now, if you're not vaccinated, well, you can't work even remotely for the Canadian government or any of its uh, institutions. You can't work for the Quebec government or any of its institutions. You can't. So I've got a lot of colleagues, interpreters that are uh, spending on lots of money, lots of money, because it's against our principles. So my phone rings even more often. Yes, I've, I've, I've lost a couple court interpreters that could be partners on, on trials the same way. Exactly. They'll make me wear a mask or they want me to be vaccinated. But anyway, it's, uh, it's not my decision. I do, I do remember Thierry had a question. We were debating earlier um, oui. back to sports. I had found a couple quotes from you online. This yes. one was from about eight years ago. And Thierry read it to be one thing and I read it to be something else. But Thierry, can you remember the, the la peau de mouton? No. Non, vous mentionnez que vous aimez le ballon ovale. Oui, vous faites, vous faites référence au rugby ou à autre chose? No, so the question was, hold on, I'm going to give that to our listeners in English. Okay. You mentioned okay. an, an oval ball. Mm -hmm. Were you referring to rugby or to football? Football. Football. Um, I must admit that I have never um, got into rugby that much. Uh, for me, it's football without rules. Um, actually, it is essentially because when you know the origin of the word rugby, it comes from a college in Great Britain that's called rugby. And there was a local team was being beaten at uh, what we call soccer, what the French and the Europeans call uh, football. And when facetious kid decided to take the ball in his hands and run into uh, the uh, net uh, of, the, of uh, the opposite team. And, uh, of course, he was suspended and the team was uh, declared beaten by forfeit. But somebody in the sense said, you know what? Hey, maybe we've got something here. And that's how the game of rugby started. Uh, but this being said, yes, I'm a, the, the, la peau de cochon is the pig skin. It's my French, my French literal translation of the pig skin. That's so, yes, what I'm, I was thinking. <laughs> I'm a fan of the pigskin. Actually, I'll surprise you. Skin. Nowadays, I'd say I became more a fan of football, uh, NFL, CFL, NCAA, I don't care, than hockey. Ooh, is, isn't that kind of like a, against some rule of being of Canadian nationality? Could they withdraw your nationality uh, without your citizenship? Well, as long as I, I keep my Quebec citizenship, it's okay. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yes. Yes, I can hear Thierry. We, we had a mini podcast about the difference between Lou football and football. Yeah. But then, then we bring in the rugby, which is for Thierry the noble sport, I believe. Mm. Of course, I shouldn't even start down that topic with the two of you. But. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like one day I was in London, uh, which were, I think, during the week of Lady Di, uh, after she died. And there was a big cricket match between uh, Britain and, uh, I don't know, was it uh, India or Pakistan or something like that. And I was in a bar, in a pub, and my, the fans were ecstatic, and I couldn't figure, what the hell is that? It's like the sort of a mix of 
baseball, but I don't know. It's like, and I asked a chap next to me, he says, to, I said, can you explain a bit, you know, the game, the concept of the game? First, he thought I was American because I didn't have a British accent. So that's the only time I'm proud to say, I know I'm Canadian. You know, avoid some fistfights uh, in pubs of Britain, of London. <laughs> and he started to explain, to try to explain the game. And I was like, oh my God, okay, no, you know what? <laughs> I'll enjoy my beer, but <laughs> yeah, uh, cricket. Not yeah, neither French nor American nor Canadian. I guess you really have to be British colonized or British to understand cricket. Oh, it's uh, that <laughs> curling. There's a few sports like that. Oh wait, but you have you have one of those. Is curling the one where you chase a thing with a broomstick on ice? Yeah, exactly. In Quebec, that yes. that's very that's very English Quebec. Oh, very English. Oh, English Canada. Canada. Yeah, it's very English Canada. Oh, yeah. all right. Here, here, I thought I had discovered one of your Quebecois nope. sports. Yeah. Do all children play hockey when they're growing up on ponds down the street? Is that still a thing? Maybe not as much as in my youth, because there's so much. The sports offer is so much bigger now, mm -hmm. uh, and um, I'd say that it's it's. Different because a lot of kids will play soccer, they'll play football, they'll play um, any sports. The offer is, is much bigger, it's wider. And hockey is more and more expensive. Let's face it. Uh, the, the basic cost of hockey equipment for your kids is $3,000 a year. And you know they'll outgrow it because, you know, you have kids, uh, they go from 5 to 12 and uh, you're like, uh, you know, taking your pulling your air out and saying, my God, uh, how many times do I have to change a pair of boots or skis or whatever? Yes. It, it's a fortune. It's a fortune. So uh, there's a lot of families, a lot of parents uh, that can't afford to equip their kids with uh, the proper equipment. And there's also the the other nuance is that when I was a kid, I played hockey. With, I've never played hockey with a helmet when I was a kid. I played we didn't do anything with, with helmets when we were kids. <laughs> no, that it was like, you know. So now you can't even go at the local pound without a helmet. No. Okay. <laughs> oh, gosh. The toque, the toque was perfect to cover our head. It kept your ears warm, too. Helmets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you yeah, times are changing. How about ice skating and sledding and just outside oh, winter yeah. stuff? Are kids still yeah. outside? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, because, you know, otherwise uh, you'd be, it'd be boring. And we've got beautiful uh, cross-country uh, paths here around the, the island of Montreal next to the St. Lawrence River, the Lac Saint-Louis, which is beautiful. You'd think that you are somewhere in... in the country place you're five minutes ten minutes away from downtown um so it's uh and you have to take some fresh air and to, to exercise I, i'm a big skier i'm a passionate of skiing both alpine skiing and cross-country skiing uh, so, so yeah outdoor yeah. winter sports yes that's, hey, I, 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 I often say that it's easier to dress uh, accordingly for minus 40 than to cope with plus 40 Celsius, which is uh, over 100 Fahrenheit. Mm. Uh, you know, 
Yeah, I, I get a lot of hate for saying the same sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's true. You know, <laughs> I, that's just... what, I, there's one, one point where even if you're naked, the temperature is too hot. You it's can't even hot. bear it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's frowned upon to walk around naked or to do Yeah, for some reason. I, don't know. <laughs> I know. Yes. Uh, I think what I'd like to ask you is people who are going to look for a book to begin with, people who would mm -hmm. like to read something by you, what would you two, what would you recommend for a fiction and what would you recommend for your nonfiction choice of your books? For fiction, I'd say that the latest uh, uh, novels, Arcade and Gale, uh, mm -hmm. that I co-wrote with uh, a colleague, Catherine Girard, uh, is probably uh, the most, uh, it's an historical rom romance. Uh, it's probably the most accessible uh, the, of them all. Pègre uh, Québec is, of course, uh, if you're interested, if you're history buff, is uh, also something I'm very proud of. Uh, Bertrand Godin, you have to know the person. Uh, the same with Rémi Couture, the makeup artist of horror, um, who uh, got uh, uh, some uh, criminal accusations many years ago because they thought that he was a, a sadistic person because of his makeup as his, his, his website and where actually it was art but uh, some people didn't understand that he, he got acquitted on the holiday line but it was a story that's very interesting but you know unless you just really want to see the gore pictures of uh, his art uh, i don't think it's very local but uh, uh if you i also love but it's more um Fantastic! Uh, it's the funerals of the god. Uh, I love I'm, it. I'm taking a, you know, I'm poking with every religion there is out there, uh, and making fun and, uh, and always putting some real characters into the the, 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 the story and uh, to make a point. So, so it's uh, very non-discriminatory. You just poke fun at all the gods, so no oh, one yeah, yeah, needs yeah. to feel offended. I'm an atheist. Right? I'm an atheist, so, you know, for me, uh, all religions are criminal organizations, but that's... <laughs> that was the quote. It was, oui, je suis athée, mais je crois dans le dieu de petit ballon. Uh, oui, oui, c'est ça. Yeah. That's the quote. Yeah, the, yes. the pigskin, uh, yeah. My god is a pigskin. <laughs> and and Formula all... One, and Formula One. <laughs> oh, and from... oh, honey, he has a lot in common with you, huh? <laughs> And for music recommendations, you've sent me so many fabulous things I could go through and curate, but I'd like to give people a couple things to start with to discover mm -hmm. Quebecois music or Canadian music, as the case may be. A couple of artists. Well, Harmonium comes to mind. Harmonium yes. uh, is a prog rock band uh, that probably has some of the best music ever uh, written, they opened up for Supertramp even in California uh, back in the 70s or 80s. And uh, despite the fact that, that people didn't understand the lyrics, 
the music itself was uh, enough to, uh, you know, draw some very good critiques. Uh, Harmonium, they did only three albums, four if you include uh, Fury Seguin, which is basically uh, the same group of, uh, of musicians. Um, so yes, they come for me on top of, of my list. Uh, of course, there's, there's some uh, incontournable like uh, Robert Charlebois, especially his uh, uh, period of the 70s and uh, uh, early 80s, when uh, actually Robert Charlebois who, uh, was, uh, was very much influenced by Frank Zappa, who was a good friend of him. Because Frank Zappa would mm -hmm. come in Montreal and sing for weeks uh, in some bars here back in the 60s, 70s. And uh, that's... In some uh, bars. Yeah. 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 Well, hey, mo most artists did start like that. We all started to yes. I, I, I often, you know, heard Mick Jagger uh, and even uh, Paul McCartney saying, you know, some of the new bands, and he was thinking, I think, of groups like Duran Duran of the 80s. The thing is that these groups started their gigs in 80,000 um, seats venues where the, you know, the Stones, the Beatles, uh, the Doors, they all started in some crummy bars with a bunch of drunken people that were fist fighting, smoking, didn't give a damn about their music. And they learned the art way out to get the attention of a crowd. And that you're talking about what, 300 people, 200 people. But if they don't listen to you, say, okay, uh, what am I doing wrong? How can I get their attention? Then it gets you equipped to deal with 15,000, 16,000 seats of venues. And later on, uh, maybe 60, 80,000 seats venues. But sure. a lot, a lot of the artists that, you know, and a lot of them are flashing the pan just because of that, because they can't handle the pressure. That's what I was just thinking. The names you mentioned are those who have had careers spanning exactly. many, 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 many decades. Yes. Rather than the producer throws you on the stage and fills up the stadium and there you go. There's no magic solution in anything. Whether, uh, you know, and you have to have a thick skin, whether you do music, film, you're a writer, you're a, a radio announcer, TV announcer, you will never have unanimity. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. If you want everybody to love you, don't go in such a career. Because sometimes the critics will be harsh. And especially now with the social media, I mean, sometimes people will say, you know, I got on the same day, I was hosting a radio show with a guy saying, uh, writing an email saying, uh, Spa should fire Charles-André Marchand right away. And another one saying, we don't hear you enough. You get the same on the same day. Even Céline Dion doesn't make unanimity. There's, there's, so no, such, there's no such things as unanimity in showbiz. And I will include arts, showbiz, whenever you communicate. And writing books, writing music, it's part of it. I would, I would include trying a foreign language. Because someone might make fun of the way you say something. So oh, well, being, yeah, being thick-skinned in that, that's, you just have to move on. You just have to believe that you have something to say, be it and, by your art, by your music, or... In hey, Japanese, if you're trying. Yeah, if you're proud of what you did, and you gave it your work, you you, you did you know the best you could, mm. and well, so be it. So be I it. Often, I often I often uh, refer to that uh, company that was Deca 
company disc that uh, rejected the Beatles first demo saying that this music will never never be popular that won't happen you're bad musicians and your songs are totally terrible I'm not sure that person kept a job all his life that's such a good reminder such a, such a good way to you know, encourage people hey and jk rawlings uh, i think that before she got published she had so many rejections and even her ex-husband used to tell her you're never gonna make a penny with that writing books like harry potter god i'll have to you know take care of you for the rest of my life and pay for you for the rest of my life you're such a nuisance hmm. That's that's why he became the ex-husband, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a great prophet. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I am I am really grateful to you for your time, and I know I asked you for an hour, so I don't want to 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 abuse the the kindness and your generosity today. Uh, do you have any last books, thoughts, films, perhaps, that you'd like to leave people with to continue discovering Quebec? Um, for Quebec, I don't know if many... Uh, there's uh, there's one filmmaker in Quebec that uh, he's a friend of mine, and he's our Fellini. He's our Federico Fellini, nonetheless. His name is André Forcier. Uh, I had a chance to play in a few of his films. Um, the, the last one was the Forget Forgotten Flowers, uh, which is uh, really something something else. I play a journalist. I play myself. Uh, also, so we uh, can see you on screen in this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this one. Oh, excellent! Yeah. And um, yeah, Forgotten Flowers. Uh, with uh, I, I think I had my beard still. And uh, is that yeah. in French or in English? It's in French. But I think there's a sub, there is a subtitled version because I did send uh, a subtitled version to my daughter in Cincinnati, uh, and they watch it. Uh, little family, my granddaughter, who's uh, three years old, is going to be four in February. She was very excited to see Papi. I saw you on TV. Oh, that's so much fun! <laughs> so you use Papi and Mamie, yeah, for Grandma and Grandpa in exactly. Quebec. Well, okay. uh, yeah, well. Yeah. Sometimes. Grandpapa, grandpapa, grandpapa makes it sounds old. Yes. You know, grandpa. It sounds like I'm sitting on a porch on a rocking chair, you know. Uh. <laughs> yes, well, I think of his father for Papi, so that's, uh, yeah. I guess we'll have to youthen up the image of that word. Yes, yeah. good I had a, My grandmother died at the, my maternal grandmother died at, she was 96 years old. And she she had 12 kids. My mother was the elephant of 12. And she would say, refrain to say, no, don't call me grandmama. Don't call me grandma. Call me ma tante Annie. Auntie. I'm not, I'm too young to be called grandma. I never called her grandma. I called her ma tante Annie. Thierry's grandmother refused to be called great-grandmother, which right. is Mimi. Ah. She said, I am not Mimi. So I made up no, a no. new name for her. <laughs> yeah. Mimi is not, uh, it's not nice, Mimi. <laughs> Pépère. Mémère puis Pépère. No, the worst I've, I think I've heard in my life is some couples who call each other like Mama, Papa, like they become parents and they, they 
give themselves like the, the attribute of mommy and daddy. No, no, I'm not your daddy. I'm not, uh, you're not my mommy. Like, whoa, <laughs> I draw a line there. <laughs> so French speakers do the same thing, huh? Mama, papa. Well, yes. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of, I've very much enjoyed discovering the similarities as well as the differences. I often yeah. say, I often say that you come to Montreal, uh, you find the perfect blend between France and the United States and English and English uh, North America. Uh, you know, you won't find the refined food that you have uh, in Montreal or in Quebec City uh, elsewhere in English Canada or even in the United States. Uh, I'm not surprised. It's, it's a it's a totally <laughs> different dining experience to start with um but there's also what we have different from france is that we don't have the sense of hierarchy uh when i said earlier we, we are le village des gaulois you know we argue we fight but there's you know the boss we don't give it you know it's like the, the i had a friend who became a boss at europe or energy in paris mm -hmm. and Guy is a very nice guy, and first week he is calling us. He was like, God, I asked for the uh, morning uh, morning show host to come see me in my office. I wanted to discuss, you know, uh, what he I always saw things, and he says he arrived in my office. He thought I was going to fire him. Oh, you never called in the boss's office if it's going to be just to have an exchange, uh, a normal exchange, because he's the boss. Yes, he, 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 there's nothing good coming out of it. The idea of like sitting down, and I remember during the Jeux Olympiques d'Albertville, uh, oh. I, I we're in Val Morel, uh, a nice little village in the Alps, and uh, there are some guys. I've been working with people from uh, RFI, uh, Radio France Internationale, mm -hmm. uh, Radio Canada, CBC, and I invited people, you know, and. I, I don't care if they were not on the air. And there's two script assistants that were like, my God, we're never sitting with the talent. I said, we all do the same job. We do radio TV. And for them, it was awkward that you would know, sit on the same table. Uh, and, and the worst offense, I also invited my friends who were based in Paris. And now my, people, my friends from the Alps were saying, Pourquoi t'as invité les Parigots? <laughs> <laughs> And, and at the end of the evening, everybody had a, a blast. We had fun. It, it was sympathetic. It was, but at the start, I could feel the tensions. And I'm like, come on, guys, you know, calm down. We all do the same job. You know. So you brought that, that North American. Yeah. But, for out me, of, yeah. but I, I didn't even know there was an issue. I didn't even know that it, it, it could, you know, uh, rough uh, some feathers. I, I, for me, it was not. Even concept because we do it at home. That's we how we do, do it. We don't do noblesse oblige here. Yeah. No, 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 no. You know, I, no. <laughs> it's like at one point the mayor of Valmorel. Valmorel is a city of like 300 people living there. It's a ski resort. And I, I, was, I was using le tu. The guy was younger than me. And he's, he's not a mayor of Paris. He is a mayor <laughs> of Valmorel. And uh, mm -hmm. the friend, police officer from Valmorel would tell me, you're, you're very friendly with the mayor. You know, he doesn't seem to appreciate. Come on. He's mayor of, you know, uh, mm. of a tree. Monsieur under, le maire. 
Ben oui, Monsieur le maire, ouais, I'm going to call him Monsieur le maire and, and say to vous, yeah, come on, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I remember I even uh, roughened him when he said that there were some uh, um, banners from Valmorel that were stolen. And I said to him, I said, you should rejoice. What will you have done with them? The Olympic Games are over. Now there's somebody in the United States, maybe in Davenport, Iowa, that will have a banner of Valmorel, and that will, people will say, where's that? Said, you know. And they'll get to find it on a map, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, get to, and maybe they say, oh, it's a beau petit village, it's a nice little place, and maybe I should go visit there, instead of going to Val d'Isère or going to the biggest, uh, uh, you know, uh, ski stations. So I said, you should, you should see it as free publicity across the world. <laughs> <laughs> was he amused by your story? No, the cops were. <laughs> oh, the cops were. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, we, we were having champagne at Le Poste de Police because uh, they couldn't have... Uh, I said I invited them. It was my last day in Valmorel before going back to Paris. And I said, well, let's have a, a drink. He says, well, we can't, uh, you know, we're on duty, but come to the station. And I went to the police station, and they had a fridge with champagne, foie gras, and everything. And we had a cocktail nice. at the police station. Oh, that sounds like very, that sounds very French and very fun. Yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm surprised it was not pastis. Uh no, but that, you know, not uh, in the south of France, it would have been pastis. Yes, not in the Alps. <laughs> and the we Alps, I, the and the Alps after a meal. At the restaurant where I was in Valmorel, that I, I came there at like one o'clock in the morning because of the, the Olympics and everything, and they always kept me a meal, and it was always at uh, this after the the main meal, uh, the house was offering me genipi, which Ooh, is yeah. mm, yeah. le suc des Alpes, excellent, made with edelweiss. Oh, made with Edelweiss. Yeah. Oh, I only know the That's song. That's what they say. That's what they say. Mm, but, you know, right. people the people in the Alps, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. they lie or exaggerate things. No. Ah. <laughs> Thierry's from... Thierry, oh, I'm sorry. You... Tu dois partir, mon chéri. All right. Yeah, he's got, so he's we... got a, a car to steal. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> we will tell was... you bonsoir, then. It was nice to meet you, uh, Charles André, and uh, maybe we see. can continue to communicate, maybe by email or something. I think you have an interesting uh, series of things to share. So, thank you. Mm -hmm. With pleasure. Mm -hmm. And enjoy the the Saturday night of football. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, my Steelers are playing tomorrow, so. I, I have a I have a theory that they invented the rules around the football to stick a bunch of commercial between every movement. I must I must admit I must admit that when I go see uh, when I go in Cincinnati I always take my uh, son-in-law to a game. Uh, usually I, I try to wait for my Steelers to beat his Bengals, um, uh, but I do find that I went to Indianapolis on a Thanksgiving game, a Thanksgiving Day game. And when you're a stadium, in a stadium of the NFL, it's excruciating. The games are so long. At, when you see it on TV, 
Uh, it's not the same because there's a TV commercial. You go and grab a beer, go and you know do something else. But you're in the stadium, and there's like those three minutes, four minutes pauses. It's going forever and ever mm -hmm. and ever. And you know, I'd rather watch NFL uh, on TV than watch it live. But the CFL is another experience. Yeah. Uh, another reason to go to Montreal and. Yeah. Oh, there's plenty of reasons. Okay. The, the, only, the only difficulty if you come to Montreal is uh, I often say, say, how long are you staying? And I say that especially to my French uh, friends uh, from Outre Atlantique. And they say two weeks and uh, three weeks. And I say, ah, promises, promises, promises. You'll never want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so we should definitely wait till the kids move out just in case we don't come back. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a good that's a good plan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, trust me, they they have ways. They they'll find a way to come back. <laughs> yes, no, but we'll just stay in Montreal. <laughs> they can have the house. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Have a great Saturday. All right. Well, Bye -bye. Bonsoir à tous. Merci. Merci encore. Plaisir. Bon weekend. Merci for joining us for today's episode. In the show notes, you will find all of the French expressions we shared with you today, a place to sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode, information about the classes we have, French with kids and French for couples, as well as a place to email Pierre, our assistant, with your comments, suggestions, and requests for future episodes. Until then, bonne semaine. Et au revoir.